Today's episode of Quarantine Creatives is brought to you by Soak Pools. Soak Pools are revolutionary space-saving pools that combine the best of a pool and a hot tub, install in just days, and provide year-round enjoyment. You've heard me talk about Soak Pools before. You've heard me talk about how beautiful they are. They literally will be the showpiece of your backyard. These are just beautiful, beautiful pools. They take up a smaller footprint than a traditional pool, so you can fit them in areas where you might not always have had the option of a pool. You can have as much or as little of it showing as you want, so you can have a beautiful kind of stone wall look. You could have it flush with a patio. Literally, the options are endless. Soak pools are made in New Hampshire. They install throughout New England and can even ship anywhere in the country to be installed by your local pool company. For more information, visit www.soakpools.com. That's soakpools, S-O-A-K-E-P-O-O-L-S.com. Soak pools, small pools, big benefits. Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I feel like I'm just drowning in news right now. I feel like I need somebody to help me make sense of all of it. And that's what today's show is about. I feel like for a lot of generations, there was Walter Cronkite, let's say. And that's how most people got their information. And now we're living in this age where it's very fragmented. Everyone sort of has their own sources, their own echo chambers, their own places that they go to to get news and analysis. And for me, for many, many years, Tom Ashbrook has uh, has filled that role. He's somebody that I listened to for many years on his uh, NPR show, On Point. It was produced here in Boston. Uh, he was the host of On Point for 16 years, and he was fired rather publicly for creating an abusive work environment. This was back in 2018. He has uh, he said publicly a number of times that he regrets the role he played in that and that he wanted to do better. There's always two sides to a story, right? And so we do talk about that whole period today, but that's not the only reason I wanted to talk to him. I think he's also just, he's somebody that can take both a granular view of exactly what's happening in a moment and the 30,000-foot kind of view of history view. He's able to be in both those worlds simultaneously. And just looking at everything that's happening in this country right now, the protesting, the rioting and looting, the police brutality, the military op- occupation of, of some of our streets. I mean, it, it is a frightening time out there. And Tom really helps me make sense of it. Tom has also started a new podcast with Heidi Leg. It's called Swing State. And we talk about that as well. And, you know, I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of self-reflection during this time as well. And just sort of thinking about who I am and what what lessons I still have to learn in all this. I think these protests around the death of George Floyd have really given all of us a wake-up call just to think about our own lives, our own privilege. Amber Ruffin is a she's a comedian and she's a writer on uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers and she's been doing these bits all week on the show where she just talks about her interactions as a black woman with the police. And it's been a little eye-opening for me just to think sort of back on on my own interactions with the police and how they all resolve positively. I've had, I don't know, maybe a dozen times I've been pulled over in my life, in Cleveland, in Boston, in New York City, in Los Angeles, probably others if I think about it, I don't know. And almost every time I've gotten away without even a ticket, usually a written warning, sometimes I get a ticket. Certainly never had a gun pulled on me by a police officer. Certainly never been asked to even step out of the vehicle. I've never had my vehicle searched. And I think just back on on a story that happened to me when I was a new driver. I went out with a couple of friends driving. It was me driving my car with four or five passengers in it and a friend of mine uh, behind us with maybe four passengers. So there's a group of whatever, nine or 10 of us. We're all probably 16, 17 years old. And it was late at night in a small town in Ohio where I grew up, and we were driving like idiots, you know? We turned right on a red light without stopping at all, which is like nothing, you know? People do that all the time. There was no traffic around, but we were on this country road, started speeding, easily 10, maybe 15 miles over the speed limit, came up to a four-way stop, 
blew through a stop sign. Finally, police lights come on. We get pulled over. One officer handling both cars. Again, he's outnumbered 9 to 1, 10 to 1, something like that. He asks what we were doing. He said he's been trailing us for a while. I mean, this had been going on five or six miles. This wasn't like, you know, he caught us in one instance. He caught us doing a lot of bad things. And we walked away with a summons to go to juvenile court, as I remember, because in Ohio, if you're under 18, you have to go to court. And we went, and the only charge that came forward was rolling through the red light on a right turn. He didn't even write up going through the stop sign, completely blowing a four-way stop. He didn't write up the speeding. He didn't write up any sort of reckless driving. And I just think about that in the context of white privilege. If I had had a different skin color, my life could have been ruined by that. And, you know, at the least, I would have been harassed, I think. Probably would have been made to step out of the car. Probably had it searched up and down for drugs or guns or who knows what. Whether or not there was any reason to suspect that I had those things. And instead, I I had to go to court. I probably had to pay, I don't know, 200 bucks. And I was on my way. That didn't affect anything in my life. I barely remember that. I mean, this was 20-some years ago. I went on to college, went on, had a successful career, got married, had kids. Never... For once, did the actions of that night cross my mind as being anything that that could have changed my life until this week. And just hearing lots and lots of stories about, if you're black in America, how policing is different. And I think it's important for those of us like me that don't have that perspective to listen to as many of those perspectives as you can, to hear these stories, to understand that we do live in two different countries. There is a different reality for white America and black America to acknowledge that, and then to figure out how to actively change that. And I want to say too, obviously, the solution to some of these problems comes from conversation. And I fully acknowledge that Tom Ashbrook and I talking today, it's two white men talking. I get that. And I get that we are coming from a, from a different place. And we don't just talk about race, obviously. We talk about politics and a lot of things that are happening in the country. But I think it's important too to seek out alternative points of view and people that don't necessarily agree with you or look like you or have your same background. And I'm going to try to do that on this show too. We've got a lot of guests coming up that are going to share perspectives and insights that I'm not used to hearing. And I hope if you're listening to this and you have some to share with me, get in touch. I, uh, I'm listening. I think we all need to. I'm at Heath Rosella on, on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a message. Let me know what you're thinking. So here's my conversation from earlier in the week with Tom Ashbrook. How are you? Uh, not so great. How's our country? <laughs> I was hoping you could tell me. That's uh, that's part of why I wanted to talk to you, I think, is just, I, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of any of this. I I'm feeling pretty low about where things have come. Yeah. And and where they could be headed. I, I, I pray we turn this around, but we are in a bad, bad spot right now. It feels like there are just so many issues all compounding at once, just coming out of this, you know, two and a half, three months of coronavirus, unemployment, racism, police brutality. Now just these, you know, protesters getting fired on, media getting fired on by police and, and National Guard. I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of it. I, I don't know what to think anymore. Well, but you can take it piece by piece and break it down. You know, uh, yeah, we've got a pandemic and it, we haven't entirely figured out how it originated, but it's not a terrible mystery. You know, we're pushing up really close to nature and nature's got funky stuff. If you get too much in its face to share back. Right. And then we did not deal with it well when it came to this country. We lived in denial from the top. And there's a terrible economic price being paid for that right now, not to mention the price in uh, human life. And then we've got, as a country, centuries of racism that we haven't worked through, that we've resisted working through, that we've made progress, but 
not crack the core of. And, you know, we all saw what happened with George Floyd. And it's, it's not inexplicable why there would be a really furious reaction to that. Yeah. And again, look to the top, look to our leadership, and it is hardly addressing the problem, the core root problem, or calming things down. So, you know, it's, yeah, it can be overwhelming and it's definitely depressing, but it's, I don't think it's inexplicable. Yeah. And it feels like flames are just being thrown on that fire, wanting that, that calm voice and not, not hearing it right now, you know, and, and I know at, at, at points in my lifetime, I haven't always agreed with who's at the top. I haven't always supported all their policies, but in moments of crisis, hearing that calming voice, getting that, you know, that primetime address from the Oval Office and just feeling like things are going to be okay, or at least are somewhat under control and, and to go in the complete opposite direction now to, to just feel like those, yeah, the, that there's gas just being poured on that fire every day and, and people being encouraged to, to act out violently towards, towards each other. Right. Uh, well, certainly the president has encouraged harsh law enforcement and we've had it. We've had police who have done their best as well. We've had really totally legitimate protests going on, a peaceful protest. And then we've also had looting and mayhem and the question about who's driving that stuff. But yeah, in the middle of that, you know, you would expect definitely at other times for a president to step up and calm the nation. Instead, we heard nothing from President Trump yesterday. In fact, I think one of his first calls at things of the day was to call Vladimir Putin in yeah. Moscow. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Prior like, to talking to the governors, that was, it was Putin right. first and then the state governors Putin after. First. Yeah. And what, what is going on here? I, I, you know, a lot of things in the last couple of decades have, have, uh, really graded on me. You know, I began this century thinking we were in fantastic position to flourish this country yeah, because we increasingly have a population that reflects the whole world. And we have a charter, a constitution that's perfect for, a if, if you follow it, if you respect it, it's perfect for a diverse society. It's become good for it but because it's not based in blood. It's based in law and in, and in ideals. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, we, and we had a great technology lead and I thought we are set up to really be a model for the world. And I knew that there was a likely a reckoning when that demographic tipping point came and we became minority majority or majority minority, whatever you want to call it. When, Whites were no longer, even in strict numbers, and this is this was, comes in my like 2047 or something, uh, the majority. But I thought, well, you know, we've got years to deal with that. But that showed up really early, the fear and, and uh, kickback on that front. And the other big thing was this out-of-control inequality in our country that, I look, I, I, you know, you're going to have people with different levels of income and different levels of wealth. And there's a lot of dynamism in that that can actually drive uh, innovation. But at a certain point, and I lived abroad a lot and I've seen this a lot abroad. And I remember, you know, as a, as a very young guy, uh, teenager still in India at that time thinking, wow, am I glad I'm from a country where the wealth is more equally shared because it gives everybody dignity and everybody, not perfectly shared, but more equally shared. This is in the mid seventies where people don't live at the edge of in such numbers at the edge of complete despair. And, and people who have something aren't afraid that if they slip, they'll fall into a pit where there was a middle class that gave a kind of ballast to our democracy. And then years later in the early part of the century, you saw that inequality just exploding. And I thought this is a ticking time bomb. This is going to be a terrible challenge for democracy. And I think we're seeing that too, that that money has bought a lot of influence that has rolled over the voices of so many Americans. Well, and I want to, I want to back up a little bit too, and just sort of, uh, there's, there's obviously just, there's fires burning right in front of us, but I want to try to take some broader lessons, I think from it too, and just sort of talk about for you, like 
in general, trying to digest the news, trying to figure out what a reputable source is, where you should be getting your information, what your daily media diet looks like, like where, where do you get your news and what, what helps you process it? What helps you think about what's happening in the world? Oh, you know, these days it's pretty easy if you care to, to have a, a rich and, and diverse media diet. It's also easy to get into some gnarly little channel where you don't hear anything but an echo chamber. Yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, the, and the other thing today is the news is just ambient. It's all around us, right? You, you know, you've got streaming stuff on your computer while you're doing other things. You've got the radio if you want in the background. You've got podcasts from every possible angle out there. Um, you, you know, go on Twitter, and if, depending who you follow, you, you'll have all these news reports and sources and breaking news and observations and opinion in, in your news flow there. Um, and I, I live in that ecosystem like everybody else. I feel like I'm just surrounded by sources. And, you know, you know who's got the reporters on the ground and the capacity to do the actual reporting. Uh, and so I, I respect that and we all need that. So the traditional news sources are still very important to me. Um, at the same time, social media can alert you to other sources who aren't so resourced, who don't have as much history. But if you follow them over time, you can get a, uh, a more diverse stream of insights. And I've just over time sort of curated for myself uh, a whole river of academics and uh, and people out in the field whose view I respect and I, I pay attention to. So it's the most diverse input I've ever had. You have to watch out all the time at the edges for credibility. Like you don't want to allow poison bullshit to come into your news stream, but you can you can get all the perspectives and you can get more grassroots perspectives more easily than ever. I graze pretty widely now, Eve, and I, in a way, feel better informed by that. But at the same time, I feel like overall we live in a, in a kind of just a shitstorm of disinformation. And it's always wants to bang, batter the door down, you know, and, and, and flood your house. So you, you, you've got to watch out all the time for that. Be very tuned. But it's a real wide river, I would say, wider than ever. It and, is. And, and, and I feel like on that on that curation front, like. It's so easy for people, I think especially people of, of the older generations that grew up used to, you know, news being a reputable thing. A newspaper arrived on your doorstep or there was the evening yeah. news on CBS or ABC or whatever that yeah. they see something on the computer now. And it's like, oh, well, it's on the computer. It must be true. It, you know, even just during this pandemic time, we've been having family members send us, you know, little video clips. And instead of sending a link to a video online they're downloading the video and just sending it unsourced and we're like okay well you know my wife and i look at it and be like that's interesting information but where did that come from who made that video what's the yeah like where did the information in it come from what, what data are they pulling oh my god i think about that all the time if you allow yourself to just be you know blown around by everything that comes over the social media transom you are going to be screwed in a hurry yeah you really got to pay attention to where, to where things come from. Uh, and now that, that whole realm is being manipulated like crazy by people with all kinds of interests. I mean, Russia, we know all about. China is playing the game as well. And not just foreign actors. Plenty of people out here in the country, in the U.S., who have their own agendas and are willing to sort of kidnap people's perspective and run it down some dark alley. Yo, it's, it's out there. But the, <laughs> what's really happening is kind of right in front of us right now. I mean, we've got a president who's threatening to put the U.S. military in the streets of our country, you know, to crack down on us. That is amazing. That is amazing. And who used it last night, parts of it, and, and the local law enforcement as well, to clear out the park in front of the White House so we could take a stroll across to hold up a Bible. Yeah. We have got a kind of leader or president anyway, in the White House that we've never had before. And I think the danger level is just off the charts right now, off the charts. And I, I, I'm all of my instincts are on the highest alert right now. 
Uh, of course, they've been for a while, but it, it just somehow gets cranked higher. Yeah, it's it's North Korea territory. It's Venezuela territory, Cuba territory. It, it doesn't feel like America to me. Yeah, and, and we're, we're pretty well down this road already. And the amazing thing, there are plenty of conservatives who are in high dudgeon of critique right now. I mean, you saw George Wilson in the Washington Post. George Will yeah. going after this president saying, enough, 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 enough. But within the party ranks, this is what blows my mind, is that how captive the party has become. And you don't hear a peep. I mean, I, I grew up in a conservative part of the country, and I know lots of conservatives. And there are principles associated with that that have been jettisoned right and left by the Republican Party right now to a degree that I find almost incomprehensible, except it's comprehensible because it's happening. It's right in front of us. Right. But the consequences of that, I, I really fear, where the president's own party is not acting as a break in any way that I can see uh, on behavior that is so far outside the norm. So far outside the norm, Heath, that I think it, it sometimes, and this has been a source of frustration, it's difficult for the traditional media to convey because they have operated with a certain set of assumptions about how power would be wielded in this country normally. And when things get out of the norm, it's sometimes hard for them to bring the bring the language, bring the words, bring the just straight honesty about what's going on that's required. And that's I think that's been a challenge. That's been a challenge too. That's why you've got to have a, a, a diverse inputs these days. You better be looking yourself at what's going on in the world and making your own you know, as clear as you can calculations about it, because even some of our big media outlets, I think have had trouble getting their arms around how far off the, the map we are going here. And what do you think drives that? Is that just in, in my mind, it's sort of that, you know, journalists have an obligation to seek out both sides of a story and to some extent try to give both sides equal weight. Why do you think it's so hard for traditional media to cover what's happening? We've had for a long time, you had this uh, sort of two-party dominance, and you know, that was the formula. You know, you, you, what do the Republicans say? What do the Democrats say? And then you test their presumptions if you're a good reporter and test their assertions, and you look inside, you try to get to the facts. But that <laughs> that was almost... It was too easy even when it was the norm. And now when you've got Kellyanne Conway right from the get-go walking out and talking about alternative facts, yeah. if, you're giving, <laughs> if you're giving equal weight to the words of a, a president whose thousands of lies are super well documented and to you know, more realistic assessments of going on in the world, then you're not doing a service. You're not doing journalism. You're just doing a kind of stenography. I mean, right now, you, you have got to be a way more critical uh, observer of what's going on than just, well, the president says this and others say that. The president is a proven liar over and over and over again. And if you can't say that out loud, you're not at grips with reality. Reality is what we're supposed to be conveying here. And it's not just a matter of slicing down the middle. <laughs> when, when one poll is Donald Trump saying any damn thing he pleases, right. whether it has any roots in reality or not. Yeah, it just, it redefines, it, it, it redefines the goalposts for everybody, I think. And it, it, there is that impulse to not use that word lie, to, to, to shroud it in, in euphemism, to say, to say he's, he's, giving untruths or, you know, what he said was later disproven by this or, you know, I, I wonder why that is, too, that that newspapers and, and other reporters are just they're so reticent to to call to call it what it is. Well, it's tough because when you say lie, lie suggests that there's an active element in it. It's not just that he accidentally said something that wasn't true or that, you know, he stumbled and. When you say lie, it means he intended to convey an untruth. He intended yeah. to convey an untruth. And that gets into what's inside his head. What's his psychology? But at a certain point, you've got to say, wait a minute. Look at the record. 
look at how deep it is. Look at how much of this there is, that and look at the consistency—the yeah, right. consistency of it. Uh, but when why are reporters reticent? Why are news organizations reticent? Because once you, if you call a president a liar, you sort of unravel the whole structure of what we've thought of as legitimate balance in reporting, right? right? Then you're in a real open, open sea. And it makes the whole project of journalism tougher. Well, that's just too damn bad. It's tough right now. It's yeah. challenging right now. And I think that we just have to take that on. I think that is our responsibility to take on. Uh, but you can see why people wouldn't want to go there because once you go there, the old markers are are gone and it's a much tougher task. I feel like too, the backdrop of all this, you know, you're making the case today and, and I feel that urgency for, for strong reporting, for more journalism, for more people out there telling the stories that, that need to be told. But at the same time, you know, looking back a month or two of, of just particularly in the newspaper industry, just yeah. the economic collapse there, the, the consolidation under corporate owners, the furloughs, the layoffs. There are less people reporting the news now than ever, and yeah. there are less ways to, to get that in some way, you know, certainly print editions at least. And I, I know, yeah. like, I haven't read a print newspaper in probably 15 years. You know, it's been a long mm -hmm. time since I've mm -hmm. picked up a, a physical newspaper, but I'm, yeah, I'm looking at Twitter all the time. I'm, I'm looking at, at online news sources. Do you have a sense or, or a perspective on on how you make the economics of journalism work in 2020? No, no, I don't. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah, nobody does. You've got a few who are doing really well as as the country has gotten so uh, freaked out. You know, subscriptions to the New York Times and others, a few others, uh, have really climbed. But as you say, if you go down the pyramid and all the way down to local, it just gets bleaker and bleaker. And people have not been able to figure that out. And I worry about that because that's where it begins. You, you need responsible, credible um, news gatherers right from the grassroots level who you can trust to have democracy work. Barack Obama wrote that piece for Medium this week about mm -hmm. sort of the importance of not just voting in, in presidential elections or or you know, senatorial uh, elections, but really getting involved at a local level. And I think that's so important from a from a media consumption standpoint, too, of just you, you've got to have somebody keeping an eye on the local sheriff or the local, you know, the mayor, whatever, the, these local officials that they have much more of an impact on our daily life. And in some ways, if there's not that check, there's an incentive to to be corrupt in those positions, I would think. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the irony is, I think that's where the rebuild for our country is going to have to come. You know, we've been on this long, easy period of kind of a, for all of the challenges that's been sort of coasting on the on the democracy front of our lives. The things more or less worked. Uh, now we've got, we're in crisis and the rebuild is probably going to have to be local. And how do you make local credible if you don't have uh, the press at work keeping things on the straight and narrow, or at least having some kind of watchdog role there? Economically, that's a bust right now. So how that's going to happen, I don't have the answer to. But we're going to need it because the rebuild, I believe, is going to have to come from the bottom up. I want to talk a little bit just sort of about the arc of your career, uh, just because I think it's it's interesting, but I also think there may be some lessons for people that are that want to get started in journalism and, and want to want to be able to be the next generation telling these stories. Uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but you were you were born on a farm in Illinois, right? Yeah, my family uh, settled a, a county in central Illinois. I mean, European settlers back in 1820. And um, I grew up on that same farm. Yeah, central Illinois. Corn and beans and sheep and hogs and cattle and chickens and <laughs> the whole thing. It was, it was, it was great. Growing up great. with that, that much history, though, with, with so many generations farming the same land, was there an expectation whether explicitly or implicitly, that that you should be the next generation taking that over? Uh, you know, when you're on the land for that many generations, some people stay there and some go out and find their fortunes or yeah. whatever you want to call it. it. In our, even in my youth, it was a, it wasn't a big farm, and big farms were becoming the thing. And so it was clear pretty early on that my cousin Steve had more of a 
hankering to do that work. And yeah. it would be more economically viable if he farmed his part plus my my wing of the family's part. And so they had me looking up and out pretty early on. They sent me on a hog truck from Peoria to go out to the East Coast and make colleges. You can kind of get a sense that they were they were pushing yeah. pushing me out, pushing yeah. me up and out. But and, but my connection there has stayed very strong uh, all of my life, and I'm still very very tied to that that land and that community. But then you went out uh, to Asia and did a lot of reporting for years, right? Yeah, I first went out as a student because uh, I'd gone off to you know fancy town, ended up at Yale, and after a couple of years there. It was such a culture shock for, I mean, it was almost Amish, the child I grew, childhood I, I grew up with there. It was sort of 19th century style. Yeah. And, um, and here was this very cosmopolitan world, uh, people who had come from much fancier educations than I had. And after a couple of years, I just thought, I don't know if this is for me. Were you studying journalism or what, what were you studying in Yale? Uh, in the first couple of years, I, I was interested in all kinds of things in it. Uh, I ended up majoring in history. I just loved history. But th that sophomore year, I was in a, at the Divinity School, and had fallen into a class on Vedantic mysticism. Hmm. And the, the, the Vedas are the ancient uh, texts that predate Hinduism in, in South Asia and in India. And I loved these great ancient South Asian tomes, partly because they spoke to me in a way that was familiar, you know, in these uh, old holy scriptures, everything is, there's divinity in everything. You know, there's the, the God of the dawn, the God of fire. And it was, it reminded me of my youth where it was, it was very much, you know, uh, raised up in the church and, you know, that God was in everything. Yeah. And, and I said to one of my classmates, I think I'm going to quit because I, this is, this is what moves me. And a lot of what I'm, I just feel like a fish out of water here sometimes. And he said, oh, don't do that. He said, if, you, if you're so into this, go to India and uh, study there and then come back and finish up here. And I, and I did. That was the first of 10 years in Asia, in India. And then, yes, reporting out of Hong Kong and then based out of Japan, but reporting all over Asia in a very volatile time there when the countries there were, I remember Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, uh, South Korea was in complete uproar. China was starting its ascent in this is in the in the mid eighties. It was a super interesting time to be there. But ten years, a lot of time. Really, really loved it. Looking at what's going on in Hong Kong today too. What's your having having lived? I had, I had a cousin over there for many years, and they're back in the yeah. states now. And and I went over and visited him, and just I was enamored with it. It's such a such a beautiful and such a unique place. I was there after English gave up control of it, of it but it was, you yeah. know, just such a great melding of these kind of Eastern and Western cultures. But now, you know, China's, China's taking it over. What's, what's your take there? Well, I, I, you can't help from a certain angle of falling in love with that hybrid. Yeah. And of course the history of it has got lots of exploitation. You know, it was British <laughs> opium traders who set that up and it's not a pretty history, but over a long period of time, Hong Kongers made that history their own. And they came to really value that hybrid. And that real hybrid of East and West, even now in this globalized age, it's rare. It's super rare. Yeah. And, and there was always this question. I mean, I was in the room when they introduced the agreement that would that would was supposed to govern this one country, two systems. Um, I was there for the handover. Uh and there was always skepticism about whether it would work, but there was a bright hope that it would, that China would see value in it. And uh, But the political freedom that Hong Kong people are used to, even coming out of a colonial past, is just, just proven intolerable under the crew that's in charge in Beijing now. And uh, it was just a, it was a pebble in their shoe, and they just, they're always afraid that it will infect the rest of Chinese politics, the Chinese population, the sense of independence, of rights, that the, the state can't just roll over. And I think ultimately it's just too much for them. And that I, right now that it looks like they're in the process, they will in the process of crushing it. And that's a very sad thing for my friends in Hong Kong, for all of the people of Hong Kong. I wish that China had been big enough to accommodate that, to to let that be as its unique thing. But then, you know, that's human nature. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. 
happens in a lot of places. If the Chinese had had a colony on the coast of California, you know, I'm not, that had ways that were more Asian, I don't know if ultimately we would have stomached that or not. Yeah. But but I I sorrow for the loss of that the beauty of that that um, hybrid that grew up there in Hong Kong. It's is really a wonderful thing, and I'm I'm glad to have known it so intimately. It's hard not to see it as part of what we were talking about relative to the U.S. too, of just sort of this this creeping authoritarianism, right? Of you know Brazil, the U.K. Germany almost got there with some of their elections. Like it just, it feels like we're moving away from that, that democracy self-rule trend that had been on the rise for so many years and are, are headed in a different path now really as, as a planet. No question about it. And I mean, some of them places, uh, maybe we'll turn it around. It looks like Germany in the last elections, it looks like they're turning the other way again. I pray they are. Uh, but that impulse has been strong in a lot of places. I think you've got to look back at what's happened with economies. We're not the only economy that globalization has had a mixed impact on and disruptive impact. Um, and with too little attention paying to buffering people from that so that they don't feel just run over. Uh, but yeah, that's happening. And yes, you've got in China, which is the, the ascendant economy now and, you know, political and cultural power comes with that. You've got the Communist Party in charge and the long Chinese tradition that um, wants centralized authority for all their own reasons. And then you've got the United States kind of right now looking to the whole world like it's forfeiting its position as the champion and the exemplar, the model yeah. of, of how democracy, how great democracy can be. And, and our guy who's giving you know, comfort to uh, authoritarians all over the world who's throwing his arm around them. It's just an, it's a, it's a baffling thing to see how we look like we're surrendering that. Not, and I don't think most Americans want to, but at the top, we're that first call yesterday went to Vladimir Putin, not to the American people. And it's pretty freaky to see the United States, you know, not only that, that Donald Trump is not standing up and uh, demonstrating what a real democratic leadership should look like, but that our country overall right now is hardly showing the world a model that they're going to be rushing to follow. We got cities in flames because we haven't worked out our problems. Yeah. And we have a leader who's pushing back in a, in a way that's more authoritarian than democratic to my view anyway no i i agree and it's it's such a small percentage of the country that supports that i think to to your point just sort of we're moving in that direction as a society and i don't think most of us want to be there and i know i'm i'm having conversations with friends in other countries and i'm, I'm sure you are too of like mm. no he's not our guy <laughs> that's not what we stand for and you know trying to to figure out just how you model that positivity for other people when it's not what's being seen on their news and it's not the it's not what's being modeled from the top but it's not a teeny tiny minority that are supportive of the president and that's not surprising right now you've got a whole news network that feeds them a view of the world that feeds into donald trump's view yeah and you know everybody has to step back now and Think about culpability here. As globalization moved in, it worked out really well for part of our society. You know, that top 5%, that top 1%, a bunch in the top 20 maybe, but that 5 and 1, they were doing great. Right. And, better than and ever. Better than ever. And it was incredible. And, you know, and you could you could have housekeepers for, all, for you know, minimum wage, which was nothing if you're in the top 1%. I mean, you – but – did they really take responsibility? Did they really care about a big portion of society that was struggling with this? Nope. And that worked for a while, but it hasn't worked forever. And Donald Trump picked up on that anger and sense of abandonment. And also there's the racial piece of it. Uh, you know, uh, whites who thought our time is coming to an end and we're not going to stand for that or you know somehow diversity is not going to work out for us and we're not going there uh 
And he made hay with that. But if for anybody who is complacent about that growing inequality, that is culpability. So fixing this is not going to be as simple as uh, somebody other than Trump at the top. It's not going to be even as simple as a kind of, uh, I hope, the Republican Party. I don't know what's going to happen with the Republican Party, but some kind of cleansing going on there. Even if you're on the other side of the political spectrum, you've got to think, what attitudes did I hold in the last 20 years that allowed for this depth of division and disillusionment to come in here? It's not okay just to say, hey, I was doing great. I was affluent. You know, I had nice cars and nice holidays and I don't know, nice new pictures on the wall. No, you got to, we all have to recommit to the whole here. It's been interesting too, just thinking about this quarantine time. I feel like there's been a bit of a cultural reset even prior to all these protests and stuff that, you know, seeing cities without traffic and without air pollution and realizing that there may be a better way of life that, you know, people are getting used to telecommuting now and saying, I don't know that I ever want to go back to an office, even when it reopens. And just there were a lot of kind of cultural resets already happening. And then, you know, the the death of George Floyd just feels like it it kicked that up into overdrive. And my my hope anyways, is that we end up on the other side of this really kind of going through that checklist and saying, what are our priorities as a country? Who do we want to be? And really looking at every piece of it from, from racism, from inequality, from pollution and, you know, the, the role of industry and just all of it, having a moment to reset and, and reprioritize. That's kind of where I, I hope we end up. I don't know that we do, but. I mean, I think it would be, it would be great. It seems like it's time for a reset. Uh, it's, a, it's encouraging to think of it. Uh, I don't know. Humans are, are and are not wired for that, you know? It, like, throwing everything up in the air and <laughs> resetting is yeah. hard for people. And people return to comfortable patterns also, though who wants to commute for an hour each way? Who right. wants to, you know, there's a lot of stuff you'd, we'd like to jettison. We're going to have to figure out how to get the economy going again, One, you know, hopefully in a, in a greener way. But it's got to go somehow. People have to make a living. I don't know how it's going to work. I, I would love to see a kind of national rebirth out of this. I'm, I'm all for it. You know, bring our strengths forward and let us leave some of this shitty old baggage behind. Right. That would be great. And really look anew at what it's going to take in race terms, number one, because that's our original sin. Right. Uh, in, in equity terms. Uh, and then, yeah, right down to the the, the way we organize our, our working lives, all of it. Of course, not everybody's going to, you know, people with kids at home who are trying to work and, and homeschool their kids or half half anyway lately and, you know, juggle everything else. Sometimes the office may seem peaceful compared to what some, <laughs> what some home lives are. So I don't, people will be all over the map on that. But, oh, boy, we've we've got some rebuilding to do. I mean, it's funny for me. Because I got auto ejected from the office a couple of years back. Yeah. Uh, so this this uh, doing more work from home, I've gotten practiced in it. Right. So I was ready before the quarantine. I knew just how to do that. Uh, and but it means rebuilding uh, social interaction in a different way, and that could be good too because we need more real social interaction within our communities, not just our workplace, and then go home and you know. And uh, I don't know, turn the tube on or, you know, watch, you know, we, we need to be connected with our with our closer communities as well. And this this might encourage that. That's that's been I found that to be a real strong thing. Uh, so I, I don't know what's going to come out of it, but a reset. Man, do we need it? Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm there. I'm so there. You mentioned just sort of your pretty public ouster from from WBUR and on point and you know I, i'm i'm just sort of curious that that unfolding so publicly what are what are the lessons that you had coming out of that experience oh that was brutal that was just brutal um you know that show ran on NPR for a long time uh well with me um as the host yeah 16 years and and you know, I loved that role. Like, I've I've loved all of my life and work, but that I just adored. 
Um, but a lot of things came together there that ultimately led to it falling apart. It was a really a sad, just a sad, sad thing. And I don't think it needed to have happened. But yeah, I've had, <laughs> I've had plenty of time to, to contemplate that. You know, a lot of things came together. I mean, one was, um, one was cultural. I was always in the news environment kind of hard charger, which as I came up in the news ranks was uh, by and large was a positive thing. Like, let's go get it. And then there was a, you know, let's get after it, whatever it takes. And there was a cultural shift where um, that wasn't a new generation was coming in that just, I'm not sure that made as much sense to them. It was more, um, uh, just like, you know, balls to the wall was not exactly what they were looking for. Right. And and then there was uh, my own sort of urgency around work was just rising because as I saw these problems mounting in the country, my sense of the real urgent need to dig deeper, to not be complacent, to push harder, to figure out what's going on. Um, rose and rose. This is during like the election of 2016 and, and oh, Donald Trump's beginning. Well, okay. well be, no, even before that, I would yeah. say uh, sort of the last 10 years or so, there was a steady increase in my sense of urgency about what the, where the country was headed and my concern that the news media wasn't keyed up enough, wasn't tuned in enough, that there yeah. was a kind of complacency this is kind of uh, the Tea Party time and economic collapse. All, somewhere. Of, all of that. Okay, all yeah. that. And inequality growing was yep. the, my number one concern because you can only take that so far and have social cohesion. And so I got, I was more and more, felt more and more urgency about this at the same time as the culture was, and even NPR, I mean, I love NPR. I respect and love NPR, but sometimes it felt like there was an urge to the normative there. Yeah. To kind of, you know, a kind of, uh, resistance to calling things out for as as hard as they were, as hard as they are, and um, and so uh, there, there there was a kind of cultural tension there as well because I was pushing really hard, feeling more and more urgent. But others were like, "Hey, chill out, chill out, man." I didn't, I didn't want to chill out. I wanted. I was supposed to be like, our job is to get on top of this, to tell truths even when they're really hard, to push harder. And so that pushing was some resistance, you know, in my team that I didn't read well enough. And then the really sad, really sad part, and I, I, I didn't talk much about this at the time, I just couldn't. But you may remember that my my wife of many years um, died of cancer yep. in 2014. And she had struggled with the cancer for eight years before mm. it finally got her. And the first part was terrible. And then there was a little reprieve. And then just when we thought we were out of the woods, it came back and it was really bad. She had breast cancer that, that metastasized and went to her stomach. And mm. stomach cancer is just a, just a brutal thing. So I would, I was working through all of that, you know, and, um, and, and she wanted it private because um, she thought that if, that she'd be seen like dead woman walking if it was out, if it was public, how, how difficult this was. And I, this is, I was with her since I was 16 years old. This was a great romance, a great love. And uh, so I respected that. So, you know, I'd be on the air, you know, every day for a couple hours and working with my crew and, and then racing home or to wherever she was, you know, Dana Farber, the hospital, whatever to, to, do whatever I could to try and bring her some comfort. And it was really brutally hard. And I'm sure that I was stretched outside of my zone of statesman-like conduct at some points. I mean, I was just stretched. And then the last, oh my God, it just became terrible. But, you know, the station and NPR, they, they really, uh, they, they had, they knew that she had had cancer. They didn't, when it got really bad again, they didn't know because she, asked me to keep this private. And so I would be, you know, they didn't know until I think three days before she died. Wow. 
And I didn't go off the air until that, until that window. So when, then when that was really rough and then the love of my life, who I'd been with for 40 years, uh, you know, died in my arms at home and, mm. and the grief just overtook me. And I took a couple of months off and it, I mean, there was no, I had to, but then I was back at work and work was very helpful in pulling me through, but also, you know, the grief was real. I mean, I was just out of my mind sometimes, but I was trying to, I was committed to the work, but I'm sure I wasn't always at my best with my colleagues. So, um, when, then when, you know, in, uh, what was it? 2017. And I was out in California. My second son was getting married and, you know, without his mom there, I, I went out early to help. And the Weinstein thing was breaking. I heard it on the radio and I, you know, it was just sickening stories that came out there. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm glad this is going to be addressed. Yeah. This kind of sexual stuff is, in, is just repulsive and there's no place for it. And, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm have a kind of quiet, it was kind of quiet part that that had nothing to do with me. Well, two months later, people are coming and saying, Hey, making those charges, which I just thought was ridiculous, uh, out of a, you know, a, a pat on the back for a job well done. Um, and, but then this sort of, uh, you know, that I was a beast in the office and, and, and boom, it was such a hurricane that, that I was out. And I thought at that point, I thought that, the station should have taken more into account what they, at that point knew what I had been through during the time the, the, the core of these complaints came from, because right. they, they came from that, that time. And, you know, throughout all that time, it was ironic, but you know, my, my job reviews were like, you know, all-star, you know, leadership, you know, top rank and all that. So, uh, anyway, it was just a sad confluence of things in the middle of a hurricane where it was, mustering up for me was more than they could face, you know, in the, in the face of that storm. And I ended up out and it was, it was really sad because I, uh, I loved the work and I uh, hated to see it gone, but you don't get to write the score of life. You know, it's got, we, we run into the storms that we run into and we're not always perfect. And sometimes there's a forgiving environment for that. Sometimes there's not. And here there wasn't. And then, it's it's a it's kind of a tragedy that it happened but there it is you don't you don't get to write it you you live it yeah it's uh i didn't go through quite the same thing but i there there are parts of that story that i definitely sympathize with uh my wife uh just went through cancer treatments last year uh she had thyroid cancer and luckily we caught it very early yeah thank you and um and you know she had an operation and and was able to you know, she's cancer free now, but she was 34, 35 years old at the time. And you yeah. just that you don't realize when you're going through it, even what you're feeling, you're not really processing it. And I, I just remember like, you know, she, she ended up going to New York for treatment. We have family down there and yeah. Uh, yeah. we found a hospital there that we thought was, was the right fit. And I stayed here with our kid. We had two young kids. And I just yeah. remember like, trying to to stay sane pushing them on the swing in the backyard knowing my wife's yeah. going in for this and getting text messages from work just like you know how do you want to handle this thing and not handling the responses eloquently just being like can you just do it like i i don't know like i'm asking for this just do it you know and realizing afterwards like yeah i could have i could have handled that differently but you know I'm sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, it, it, no, it's, it can be really bad. It's, and I'm so happy that your wife, uh, that you guys were on top of it and that she's better. That's, yeah, thank you. That's such a blessing. You know, Danielle, Danielle was such a beautiful human being, just a wonderful human being. And, and she wanted to live so badly. Um, but, you know, but <laughs> no, she did all the surgery. She did all the treatment. It brought all the hammers down on her. Yeah. And it didn't work. And yeah. then it just got worse and worse. And, and I mean, it was hellish, man. And it was hellish for years. And she was so brave in it. But it's it's hard. 
Yeah. Anybody who's been through that, especially if it stretches out and gets really bad, it it's it's terrible. Yeah. And so I'm I would not wish that on anyone. And I I I'm so grateful for, to my family and the way they've pulled through. But it was a terrible loss. She was a she was just a, a wonderful person. And our kids, you know, to watch the blow that they took and how they stepped up to help them. Yeah. Losing your mom is a terrible thing, no matter what the age. And yeah, it's a it's a hole in the world for our family. But you know, that we are not alone in that. People take losses all over the place. George Floyd's family, you know, yeah. look at them. Right. You know, they they had to, you know. So life is not always easy, and you 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 have to you have to build back. And my kids have in a way that I'm so proud of and so grateful for and you know i've had the good fortune i have i have now remarried i thought i never would but you know love and beauty come too it's not life is not just a horror show and that's true for each of us and it will be true for our country it's not just a horror show love and beauty will come also Uh, but you've got to be open to it and you've got to work for it and uh so yeah that's that that was a life path I didn't expect hard, but then, you know, beautiful things have come too. So yeah, it's what it is. Our our country will find its way as well, but I just, I want to, I want to minimize the suffering as we go there. I want to get there as fast as we can. I want to grapple really openly and honestly with the problems that we need to address uh, because otherwise it just stretches it out and makes it worse. No, it's, it's true. And last point that I just, I want to ask you about your new podcast, because I feel like it's, it's really, it's a great space to start having some of those conversations to start figuring out just how we move forward. And and, uh, it's called swing state. And I know initially you weren't really planning on diving into the news of the day, right? This was, this was something that was going to look at in the 2020 elections yeah. where it will all be decided. Yeah. That was our Heidi leg and I, and she had just wrapped up a big research project at the, at the Kennedy school at Harvard, Shorenstein center there. And, um, Kim said, Hey, you want to jump on this and, you know, in this big election season and it, given how important those swing states were in the last election, the election of Donald Trump, it, that seemed like a pretty good idea, but, everything exploded so quickly with COVID and all the rest that we saw, you know, <laughs> the whole country is in a swing state. And, you know, the, the, the swing of options in front of us right now, you know, from, I mean, face it at one end of the place that we're too close to right now, fascism, straight up fascism right. in our country. You got, you got, you know, people flashing stuff in the street. That's, that's Heil Hitler kind of stuff, Nazi symbols and right wing, you name it. And look at a lot of behavior at the top right now. We're, we're to at the other end, a kind of rebirth that would get back to great ideals that would rethink our economy, that would think about equity, that would look at the race issue in a new way. That is such a wide swing. And that, you know, so whether cultural, economic, political, socially, the, the range of paths in front of us right now, right up to and including life and death with COVID and coronavirus. So we just, it was, we couldn't stay narrower than that. So we've opened up the lens and I'm really happy to be doing it. It's, it's, it's a blast. Yeah. It, it, I feel like, you know, for me looking at job prospects in this time, you know, I, I got laid off right at the beginning of all this in March and for, t- for a TV producer, there's just no production happening right now. So there's just, right. you know, there's nothing happening. And yeah, th- that's the reason I'm doing this show is just, I wanted to to start talking to smart people in this, in, in sort of across the, the entertainment you. and media landscape. Yeah. And just figure out like, what's, what's the path forward. But you know, it's, I know for me and I don't know for you, but like figuring out how to get an audience, how to, how to make money at it, you know, every piece of it, it's, it's really easy to buy some audio equipment and, and to right, upload a file. Right, right. But I just, right. from, from a viability standpoint, you know, this, this is a fun hobby right now, I guess, while well, there's not yeah, much else yeah. going on. But I don't know sort of, you know, there's so many people jumping into the podcast game right now. And I don't know, what, what's your take on sort of the future of this, this media space? Well, if, 
I mean, for me right now, it's, it's a, it's a passion project because making a living when you first start a podcast, I mean, come on, you you know, you, you've got to soar like crazy to get up into into something that looks like an income. I don't, I don't know what will happen with that. You know, fortunately I've always been a, a thrifty person and I've found some uh, good avenues also in, in just even these last couple of years, but so and that's okay. But, but over time, if you're pouring yourself into something, you like it to pour back something in your pocket (laughs) as well. And I don't know how it's going to work. Most podcasts don't make squat. And uh, a few of them, you know, go big time and good on them. Um, But there's a lot of talk about the golden age of podcasting passing already. Uh, I don't know, a million, a million and a half, two million podcasts now. Uh, And many of those which are gain more popularity uh, are now getting, you know, picked up by consolidators, whether it's Spotify or, you know, you name it. Uh, and a lot of talk of this age of people being able to sort of putter along the podcast, it'll be, it maybe a hobby or nothing soon. Yeah. Um, maybe already. And so I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that <laughs> means. Man, for, yeah. It's easy to get the equipment and put something up. You're right. But for me right now, it's it's more about the urgency of our country situation and pitching in in whatever way I can. And uh, I'm happy with the, the good reception for Swing State. It's been it's been uh, terrific to do it. I don't know what that's. I don't know how how far that will go or, or where it will go. But I I everybody is called on to do their part right now, and I guess that's mine. Yeah using your voice for good. And and it's, it's so nice. I think just having your voice back in the national conversation and, and hearing your perspective and, and hearing today too, just sort of, it's helped me sort of process what's happening because yeah, it's, it's easy to get stuck in a loop of just scrolling Twitter endlessly and just shaking your head and saying, (laughs) where are we going? That's right. Everybody's a prisoner of that. But you know, Donald Trump's usage of the word aside, this is a great country. Yep. With deep problems, many of which are unresolved, but the but the idealism at the heart of this country's concept, conceptualization, even though it was imperfect from the start, the stuff in there is what we need. You know, the idea of us all being created equal and of living under the rule of law and law that's fair and good. If we strive, if we just go for that and make it real. And rethink and reset. I still, I love the idea of the U.S. modeling that for the world with a beautiful, diverse population and all the strengths that we can bring to that. We do not have to be white supremacists to be happy and successful. We're going to be a whole lot happier when we get all the way to the other side of that. Yeah, you know, way too much of that. We don't need that. And I think uh, we can get there, but it's going to be a struggle right now. And we're in the heat of it right now. And the danger is high that we face setbacks and um, the sort of degradation of what we can be before we get to the other side. So buckle up. This is the real deal. <laughs> this is the real deal. Yeah. If you're a journalist, this is the time, you know, by whatever means to to practice illuminating what's going on in the world in a meaningful and important way. Yeah. And for us citizens too, I think just getting your beliefs oh out God. there and marching, talking to your Congress people, we're voting. All gonna have to st- yeah. We're all going to have to stand up for it. There's just no way around it. It's, this is, this is moment of truth time, folks. These next few months. Oh my God. Good luck to us all. <laughs> but it really is time to stand up and figure out what is the thing that I can do that will push the needle toward the good and the yeah. just and the future that you actually want your children to have and then stand up for it, you know, and not just on Twitter. Tom Ashbrook. What a delight to talk to him, huh? I, I really enjoyed that. And it was, you know, I wasn't sure if I should talk about the WBUR stuff, talk about the on point stuff. And he brought it up a little bit and I took that open and I went with it and you know, it's a, it's a good reminder that there are, there are always multiple sides to a story. And, you know, it's up to you to decide what you do with that, I guess. But I feel like I never really heard his side of it. And that's not to discount 
the people who felt offended by his actions either. I understand that there, there were concerns there, and I don't minimize that. But I think it's important to remember, too, that we're, we're victims of our circumstances, right? And the things that are happening in our life at any given moment completely inform where we are and how we behave towards others. And we need to work to change that. And that's, that's the lesson of this week, huh? Working to change things that, that don't work for all of us. All right, that's it for today. I've got a really exciting show coming up on Monday as well. I talk to somebody who I've gotten to know over the years and just adore. Nick Offerman is going to be here on Monday. I am so psyched for that. Let me give you a little preview of, uh, of what we're going to talk about. The older I get, the more I, I feel a kinship with my family and the, uh, the simple appreciation of things like family and friendships and neighbors and uh, gardening and cooking and handcrafting. And um, it's, it, it's living a, a self-sustained life um, in a frugal way and experiencing the pleasures that that can bring. Nick Offerman, tune in on Monday. You don't want to miss that one. It's, it's a really good one. All right. Thanks for, uh, for listening to Quarantine Creatives. If you can, leave a review, leave a rating. really helps. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a message, too. Let me know what you like, don't like. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, everyone.